Well, again, I, I want to say uh, good morning. Uh, my name is David. I'm the lead pastor here at Apostles. And if you're worshiping with us for the first time, if you're new to our community, welcome. We're so glad that you're here uh, today. And welcome if you're joining us online. Uh, we are entering the new year together uh, with this new series that we're calling Essential Practices for Followers of Jesus. Uh, because as we begin 2021, we want to really take this month of January and look at these essential practices uh, that will help draw us near and I think really help us stay connected to God this year, which we desperately need. And so uh, I'm excited. We're going to take uh, these weeks to look at these four practices of how to be with Jesus, which uh, Derek Smith uh, led us through last week. If you missed that, just encourage you to check that online. Great encouraging word on how to be with Jesus, how to read the Bible, how to pray, and how to worship. Uh, and I'm really excited because different members of our community are going to be sharing uh, based on their passion, their experience, and what God has given them about each of these practices. So this morning, we get the great privilege of hearing from uh, our friend and brother, Jack Wisdom. Uh, and so would y'all just give Jack uh, a big warm welcome this morning as he comes and brings God's word to us. So thank you, Jack. Well, howdy, y'all. It is a tremendous honor that I've been assigned to this particular topic. <clears throat> For some time now, I've had the sad, slightly sickening sensation The big tech plutocrats, opportunistic power craving politicians, self righteous multinational corporations, political activists posing as journalists, and a bunch of bloviating, pontificating practitioners of punditry have been collectively and metaphorically relieving themselves in my boots and telling me it's raining. <laughs> I'm hungry for truth, but I have no confidence in the news and information sources that digitally bombard my so-called smartphone on a daily basis. I have basically resolved to limit my media consumption to the Babylon Bee <laughs> and to reruns of the Andy Griffith Show <laughs> and the first two seasons of Hee Haw before Roy Clark grew these ridiculous hippie sideburns <laughs> and videos of Johnny Cash and surprising animal friendships and family bluegrass bands from Branson, Missouri. That's basically going to be it for me in terms of media consumption for the foreseeable future. I'm certainly not here today to whine or to encourage anyone to whine. There is no deficit of whining and whiners today. 
There is a deficit of truth and courage. And so I'm grateful that I get to give this talk, which is effectively intended to be a strategy, an essential practice for knowing and living the truth in a world of lies, disinformation, misinformation, spin, propaganda, and pseudo-reality. I'm calling this essential practice the live not by lies strategy. With all gratitude and respect to the great Russian dissident author Alexander Solzhenitsyn who published a fabulous essay by that title in 1974. Before I unpack this strategy with you, I at least want to articulate why it is necessary that we have such a strategy here and now, and why it has always been necessary for followers of Jesus to have a live not by lies strategy. Beginning with the uh, dangerous context of the Roman Empire of the first century and extending to every time and place in church history since then and there, followers of Jesus have been engaged in a battle for truth, in a battle against lies. That's what you sign up for when you say yes to Jesus Christ and his love. You sign up for that struggle. Now, it's just an indisputable biblical fact that the way things are in this world is not the way things ought to be. God's good creation has been vandalized and distorted and twisted into a bogus world system. And according to Scripture, the bogus world system has a bogus ruler, a being called Diabolos, the devil, Hasatan, Satan. And Diabolos, Satan, exercises undue influence in human affairs and in our lives through the use of lies and deception. If you need biblical references, I'll give you a few. Jesus, at least three times in the Gospel of John, including John 12, 31, refers to the devil as the, quote, ruler of this world. In that same Gospel, John 8.4, Jesus refers to the devil as the father of lies. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, refers to the bogus God of this bogus age who blinds the minds of loved, starved human beings to the love of God which is demonstrated in Jesus Christ. And then Revelation 20 describes the devil's mission to deceive the nations. And current events and human history tell us the nations have been and are being deceived. You see, the devil has a plan for human beings. His plan is to deceive us, to divide us, to distract us, to discourage us, and ultimately to destroy us. 
I could give you biblical references for every piece of that plan. Some of us are probably feeling discouraged right now as we contemplate the world that we're handing off to our kids and our grandkids. That discouragement is present because we've been distracted from the power and the promises and the love of God in whom we are to trust in the face of all adversity and calamity. His promises are good. And of course, we are divided. The devil has used tumultuous events of the last 12 months to divide his people, to divide God's people. I have two close friends, both Christians. They are biologically related, siblings. The older brother was greatly offended by the presidential vote of his sister. And so he laid out for her in black and white his non-negotiable terms that unless she repented from her vote, he would not and could not forgive her. Good grief. That brother may as well have been praying some perverted demonic ripoff of the Lord's Prayer. Devil, may your will be done in my heart as it is in the bogus world system. So do you agree we need a essential practice? I hope that you do. So our first biblical text today uh, was the gospel reading. We're just going to look at a little bit of it. Matthew 4. <clears throat> this is a familiar passage. David has uh, preached on this exact passage within the last couple of years uh, in our trek through Matthew. So I don't need to lay out much here, but look and see what happens. <clears throat> the devil, the tempter, the adversary approaches Jesus he has been fasting for 40 days, and he uh, lays out a proposition, an invitation. If you are the Son of God, the creator of everything seen and unseen, you can resolve this issue right now yourself. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. How does Jesus respond to the devil? He quotes the Bible. He quotes the Word of God. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Word of God is how Jesus, the Word of God Himself, beats the devil. We cannot successfully 
use the Word of God in a conflict and temptation situation if we do not know the Word of God. And you will not know the Word of God unless you effectively study in a disciplined way the Word of God. It should be a primary priority of every follower of Jesus to learn how to read the Bible for all it's worth. In fact, somebody should write a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. In fact, somebody did write a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And I'm still aggravated by it, and here's why. That book was written by two of my favorite professors at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, Gordon Fee, my mentor, a world-class uh, New Testament scholar, Douglas Stewart, a great Old Testament scholar, fantastic ping-pong player with a great sense of humor. They wrote this book after I graduated. Friends, I invested three years and thousands of dollars that I saved being a police officer in the city of Dallas to get a theological education, and they put the best stuff in a short book that you can buy today for less than $15. So read the book. But let me just give you a few pointers. We're going to call these training tips uh, that I uh, gleaned uh, from those three years and those thousands of dollars that you can get in just $15 or less probably. So uh, here are the five training tips. And I would put this in line with uh, those of you who are embarking on a uh, regimen of physical training this year and you're just wandering around in the gym looking hapless and trying to figure out what to do, taking up that piece of equipment that I need right now while you're looking at your phone. Uh, I don't want you in my gym with that kind of attitude. I want you to come in with a plan. I'm not talking about working out today. I'm talking about training tips for reading the Bible. Don't get me distracted, y'all. So, so here are my five training tips, and I could give a long dissertation on each and every one of them, but I'm just going to give you a short, few short uh, pointers to point you in the right direction. Uh, and the first one is, you need to have a daily plan. You need, to, uh, you need to just give up on the ad hoc, haphazard, what do I feel like today approach to studying the Bible. Have a plan. There are lots of good plans. There are lots of ways to do this. Uh, uh, historically, uh, <clears throat> since Christians have had uh, access to Bibles and the ability to read the Bible in their own language, that has not always been the case in the history of the church, but historically, uh, <clears throat> Christians uh, have uh, a shared uh, throughout the church uh, a lectionary, a set of daily readings from the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, and there are several versions of the lectionary available today uh, online to you. You could use the daily lectionary as your plan for reading the Bible. It has real advantages. It keeps you from just picking and choosing your favorite passages. Uh, it puts you uh, reading the same thing on the same day with you know, lots of thousands of brothers and sisters, millions of brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, that's cool. Uh, it gives you Old Testament, New Testament uh, Psalms. It gives you all kinds of all kinds of readings, that's a good plan. Another plan which uh, I use along with the lectionary 
is I always am working my way through a book of the Bible. You could just set out on a journey through one book of the Bible. Make it your plan this year to really, really get to know one book of the Bible. Make it a short book. And just work through it prayerfully, methodically every day. Uh, there are other good plans. I have a website link if we can pull it up. Uh, I don't know who MichelleLeslie.com is. I do know that he or she, I make no assumptions in 2021, has, <laughs> has aggregated about a dozen different daily Bible reading plans. Uh, I clicked on each one of them and they're all good. So there is another idea. But have a plan. Have a plan uh, and execute the plan. That's training tip number one. Training tip number two. Understand the genre. The genre. Uh, the Bible is <clears throat> not simply a book. It's a library. Do you understand that? It's a library. There are all kinds of amazing uh, uh, writings and types of literature that form our Bible. You have poetry, you have historical narrative, you have these amazing and startling uh, prophecies, you have apocalyptic literature, you have gospels, which are their own special type of genre. You have all these different types of literature within the book. Uh, I hope that you would not read uh, the poetry of Edgar Allan Poe the way you would read, you know, one of those Ikea do-it-yourself assemble your couch manuals. I hope you would not read one type of literature like another uh, and not distinguish between the genre because it affects the way you read and interpret to know what you're looking at with respect to the genre of scripture. That's one of the mistakes Christians make. They want to make what's uh, metaphorical, literal, and then they want to ignore what's literal because it's too uncomfortable, but uh, you need to understand the genre. Uh, and that's where that book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, I think can be a great tool. Because what the authors do in a very simple, uh, easy to understand way is they work through the interpretive keys for reading the different types of genre that we find uh, within the Bible. Uh, so uh, that's, that's important. Training tip number three. Pay attention to the historical and literary context. Context absolutely matters. And there's two types of context that we need to be cognizant of if we're going to be effective and faithful readers of any literature, including uh, the Bible. So every book in the Bible has a historical context. And it matters. And it matters if I'm reading the book of Lamentations, uh, the historical context of Lamentations or Jeremiah absolutely matters. Because that was God's word for those people then and there, which by the Holy Spirit becomes God's word for us here and now. But if I don't understand what they were dealing with then and there and what God was telling them, I will miss what he has for me here and now. So there is great information available uh, on the historical context of each of the biblical books. Um, somebody should write a book called how to read the Bible book by book. 
They did it. I guess they weren't making enough money selling that other book. So Fee and Stewart have written a wonderful uh, book. It's a really good introduction to each, each book of the Bible to world-class scholars uh, speaking to normal, everyday people like you and me and giving enough of the historical context for each of the books so that you can make sense of what you're reading. It's vital if you're going to read Paul's letter to the church of Philippi to understand the citizenship motif and the history of that community and the particular pressure faced by Christians uh, who refused to say that Caesar was Lord and Savior in that particular Roman colony. Knowing that opens up so much uh, that is meaningful and powerful in that short letter. So, so uh, understand the historical context. It's going to take a little bit of research. There are all kinds of good tools available. There are some bad tools available. Uh, if you have any questions about anything that's online, uh, you know, I suggest you let, you know, just David would probably love to answer those emails. I'd love to answer them about, you know, wouldn't you actually? Absolutely. That's nothing more I want to talk about, actually, than this stuff. So if you're just pittering around and you're saying, is this a good, reliable website, you know, uh, ask, ask somebody. Ask somebody you trust who's done his, done his or her work because uh, there's amazing information readily available to you. Uh, literary context. Uh, this is really a problem. Uh, if we try to yank anything out of its literary context, it's true with any type of literature. It's certainly true with the Bible because there's a lot at stake if we misinterpret the Bible. So I shouldn't just yank a word uh, out of a sentence without considering the context of the sentence. I shouldn't yank a sentence or a verse uh, out of a paragraph without considering the context of the paragraph. I shouldn't yank a paragraph out of a broader thought unit without considering the flow of the argument in the thought unit where the sentence is. And then I need to look at that thought unit within the overarching themes uh, and development of the arguments or the motifs in the whole book, I have to understand the context. Almost every uh, regrettable uh, heresy and misunderstanding in the church uh, can be tied back to uh, a, a decontextualized misinterpretation of Scripture. So read within context. Any of these daily reading plans that I have uh, given you uh, that are on that uh, link, uh, give you context each time. So, so understand, pay attention to the historical and literary context. Uh, item four, do not study in isolation. Now, I want you to study alone every day. I don't think there's any substitute for you uh, uh, having your Bible open and prayerfully covering the text uh, every day by yourself. But you should not be studying and interpreting Scripture in isolation. Scripture is a gift to the church, to the community of faith uh, throughout the ages. So I would like to see that uh, you are balancing in your life a discipline of daily Bible study with a, with a practice of weekly Bible study in a group, getting together with people and opening Scripture together. And then I would like to think that as you're reading the Scriptures alone throughout the week, 
that if you have things that concern you or that raise questions or that you don't understand or that you simply want to discuss, that you have people in your life who would be perfectly delighted uh, to have you call them and say, I just read this in the Psalms. Uh, here's what I'm wondering, or what do you think about this? You should have people in your life that share that enthusiasm for God's Word and, and love you enough to want to have those conversations. You re realize God's Word is intended for us to read it together. And throughout most of the history of the church, uh, most Christians didn't have the ability to have a Bible on their shelf like we do. Or an access to all these theological materials which we have. But still we need each other and it should be a community exercise of reading and interpreting and loving Scripture. Uh, if you come up with an interpretation of Scripture that no one has thought of before, I have a hunch you're not on to anything that's good. <laughs> so we're, we have the blessing of so many brilliant, faithful people over the centuries of the church have opened this book prayerfully and have wrestled with this book and have given us the benefit of their insights. So we do not read in isolation. We read uh, in the context of the church uh, throughout history in the church today. So study alone, but not in isolation. And then finally, <clears throat> uh, I could really get on the soapbox here. Uh, memorize to meditate. This is, I think, one of the lost disciplines and practices uh, of the church. And we are impoverished because of it. Uh, <clears throat> I cannot think of a good reason or excuse that any of you would have for not memorizing Scripture every day. You, you can come up with one, and I'm just going to tell you it's not good enough. Why do we do this? Why do I need to look it up? I've got it on my phone. I, can just, I mean, why do I need to memorize? I can just pull it out of my pocket. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I bet my grandson won't be able to do that in 20 years. I bet his access to an unfiltered, uh, politically incorrect, uh, ancient book uh, will not be so uh, easily accessible through digital means that are guided by you know, the powers that be, whoever they may be. We should own Bibles, we sh physical Bibles, we should open physical Bibles, we should read physical Bibles, and then we should have the discipline of memorizing some of what we read every day. Make flashcards. The old, you ever make, when's the last time you made a flashcard? Make a physical flashcard, carry it in your pocket. And then when you're having some idle moment, instead of checking your phone six times, go over your scripture verse on your flashcard. In fact, there should be a ratio of like four to one in terms of times you look at your Bible and times you look at your phone on any given day. Can you think you can pull that off? You can't. But if you've, got, if you've got something you can pull out of your pocket that's not your phone, that'll get you through the next few anxious moments, 
It's not for nothing the psalmist says in Psalm 119.11. What does he say? Does anybody memorize this? If you're going to memorize one verse, memorize this one. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. I believe we could memorize this together in like three, three minutes. Psalm 119.11. In fact, make that your first flashcard. What I, what I know now, I mean, you get to a certain age, and a lot of y'all aren't there, when you wake up at three in the morning with all kinds of anxious thoughts about things done and not done, and you're trying to force yourself to go back to sleep, uh, I now have, have learned that I can simply start working through a chapter of Scripture and then my, my heart uh, rests, and uh, I fall asleep, sometimes three words in, sometimes four verses in, uh, and I wake up uh, much better off. Okay, briefly, quickly to summarize, I want us to look at one text together where I'm going to try to uh, drive these points home and give you uh, <clears throat> a criteria for determining whether you're properly and effectively reading the Bible. So the, the passage is Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, uh, uh, verses 12 to 13. This, of course, has a historical and literary context. The historical context in the book of Hebrews is that there is this community that is beleaguered and that is beginning to face real persecution. And some people have had their their possessions confiscated. Some people have been incarcerated. Some people have been uh, beaten. And it's about to get worse in the harsh uh, persecution of the Roman Empire uh, under Nero. And, and the, this preacher uh, knows this community well, and he loves them. And he's giving them a sermon. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. It's a word of exhortation to these people not to give up, not to quit because it's hard. Because what you're giving up on is really what matters most and ultimately, which is Jesus Christ. So Hebrews starts with this declaration in the very beginning that in the past God has spoken to your fathers through the prophets, but now definitively he has shown himself to us in Jesus. And if you give up on Jesus, you've given up on everything that lasts, everything that matters. You've lost the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do not quit. That's the sermon in Hebrews. It's a sermon a lot of people need to hear right now because my phone is telling me every day about a bunch of high-profile, famous Christians who are giving up. So this is that sermon. And in the previous chapter... Uh, he goes to his text like any good preacher, and he quotes Psalm 95, one of the most infamous, startling rebukes uh, and warnings in Scripture, where it says, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. The preacher quotes that passage three times in a span of about 14 verses. Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. So the presupposition is of the preacher is you're going to hear God's voice today and you're going to do one of two things. You're going to say yes and thank you or you're going to harden your heart. And he says, do not harden my hearts because it has calamitous consequences. And then to drive this whole sermon home, he gives us this theology of the word of God for the logos of God. The Word of God is living and powerfully working. The word there is energase, from which we get our word energy. 
uh, is powerfully working and sharper than every two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of both soul and of spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and there is no creature unrevealed before him, but all things are naked and exposed to his eyes. To him is the Logos for us. I could preach four sermons on this passage. I'm going to try to do this in two minutes. This is a theology of the Word of God. This is, a, this, is the, this is the biblical witness to the power of the Word of God. This echoes what we see in Isaiah 55, what we see in Jeremiah 23, what we see in Psalm 119. The Word of God is not dead letter. It's alive and powerful in the human heart. And the Word of God is a sword. And ultimately, uh, you see in Revelation how that sword, uh, uh, how that sword uh, is used uh, to bring all things uh, to pass that must come to pass. But in our daily encounter with Scripture, it's a sword that performs microsurgery on the human heart. It pierces into the deepest part of the human soul, of the human psyche. And it, the Bible is cuts through by the power of the Spirit into our lives and reads us. The Bible reads us and changes us. That's what the Bible does. That's what the Word of God does. When, when the preacher quotes Psalm 95.1, he says, as the Holy Spirit says, in other words, he says what the psalmist wrote hundreds of years before is the God's word to you today through the Holy Spirit. And so reading the Bible is not an academic exercise, although you'll have to use your minds and certain, acquire certain skills. Reading the Bible ultimately is the necessary daily heart surgery we need. Today in this great city, uh, skilled uh, cardiovascular surgeons save people's physical lives every day and all day long, dealing with uh, various maladies. Thank, praise God. Today in this city, every Christian should be voluntarily submitting to the heart surgery of a daily disciplined, prayerful encounter with the living Word of God every day. Because we cannot live, we cannot live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God if our hearts are not soft and open to those words. So, how do you know if you're reading the Bible correctly? If you uh, read your daily reading, you close the book, and you pat yourself on the back and say, I am really something. Look at me reading my Bible and how right I am about everything. I couldn't be doing much better. You're not doing it right. <laughs> if you read Scripture and you realize that you are exposed and that you are in need of God's grace now more than ever and in need of God's forgiveness now more than ever, and you are called now more than ever to be an agent of that grace and forgiveness in a divided, hate-filled world, 
then the Holy Spirit is starting to get a hold of you through Scripture. You should not close your Bible and ride off on a high horse. Now this last few verses, I mean, this last few words, uh, I worked all week to try to translate the Greek. Uh, a lot of the translations uh, end uh, Hebrews 4.13 by saying, to whom we must give an account. I think that is the gist, but that's not what it says. I think what's going on here, though, is when we close Scripture, the Scripture is, is not uh, simply us receiving. Uh, scripture is intended to provoke a dialogue between us and God. And so as we read Scripture, we should be talking back to God. Honestly. Sometimes you'll be talking back like the psalmist, like how long and why and why me? And sometimes you'll be talking back like the person who realizes I need to repent. And you'll be saying, forgive me. And who can I call and who do I need to apologize to next? What should happen with us reading the scriptures, we should immediately have a word to say to God. And usually it should include Phrases such as, thank you, and yes. So I went long. I apologize. Uh, it's a big topic. But to say it's an essential practice is 100% correct and probably an understatement. I don't think the church, since the Reformation, has ever been as universally... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, biblically illiterate as it is today. Imagine uh, a president of the United States giving something approximating Lincoln's second inaugural address today, which presupposes a level of biblical literacy among common, ordinary United States citizens. Common, ordinary United States citizens listening to Abraham Lincoln knew their Bibles better than the most devout churchgoers today. That's what I suspect. May that not be true at Apostles. Amen.